All right, tonight we start into the Millennial Kingdom. We have uh, dealt with Armageddon. We have dealt with uh, the uh, final end of the beast. We saw the final end of the harlot several weeks ago. Uh, last week we saw the end of the beast and false prophet. Uh, they are not going to come up again in Revelation. Uh, we have Christ on earth. We have the birds feasting on the flesh of men, of captains, kings, uh, all men who had the mark of the beast. And uh, that group. And we recognize that that was not all men on earth, but um, uh, uh, certainly a, a large number of them. And even as we have today many who are resisting um, governments, we will have that there. But when Christ comes, we will have... Uh, the same thing. We'll still have a, a resistant group that will have to be addressed all through the thousand-year reign. So let's pick up in chapter 20 of Revelation is where we are at. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And uh, let me just... There, there's not, again, a lot of information here uh, because uh, we don't need a lot of information because we have all the Old Testament prophets and the extensive information they give us... Um, you think of Ezekiel and chapter after chapter of detailed information on this period of time. Uh, we, and things that we are familiar with when we talk about the lion laying down with the lamb and passages like that are really about this time period. And so I wouldn't expect, we shouldn't even anticipate that John is going to spend a lot of time on this um, because of so much Old Testament content that we should have already read and studied and been familiar with. So let's go ahead and read verse 1 through verse 6. Um, and, uh, well, verse 7, we'll go all the way through verse 7. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, uh, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And I'm going to stop right there um, because we're not going to look at Gog Magog um, for a couple of weeks. Well, probably three weeks because we have our business meeting coming up. Um, wait a minute, that's three weeks away, isn't it? So we probably get to Gog Magog in two weeks. So we, well, no, we're not going to get through all that material in that time. So we come into a thousand year reign of Christ. And again, we are confronted with its purpose. And in the day uh, equals a thousand years format that many have... Uh, Adopted, and, and I have somewhat adapted, adopted as well, um, that the earth's age is wrapped up in that formula of creation uh, being representative of the duration of the earth from sin to its conclusion. 
we have 6,000 years, which we are abruptly coming up on if, if we haven't really arrived there. Um, we have also, and remember, the 2015 that you hear is since the birth of Christ, and that is not the key event in Scripture. The key event in Scripture that we should mark our calendars by is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is still 15 years off. Uh, that was about 30 and so we still have about 15 years to hit that mark of 2,000 years since Christ's death, um, burial and resurrection. And so that's the key element there. And you might say, well, then you're saying the Lord's not going to come for 15 years. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, because often, if you look at God's stratagem, He cuts short the time. Uh, and the Bible talks about that if he, did, if he didn't do it, that there would be none of faith on the earth if he didn't cut it short. Uh, and also the cutting short of judgment. And, and so we, we can anticipate it here that uh, we had uh, essentially, roughly, 4,000 years represented from creation to Christ. Um, we have 2,000 from Christ to uh, the end and then representing the 6,000 years of uh, the six days of creation, one day of rest. And many associate the thousand year as the day of rest for our world, for this, uh, uh, for creation. And that sounds weird. Well, why does God need to give creation this rest period? Uh, does He owe it to them? Um, is, uh, what is there involved in this? And within the, the wisdom of God and and the working of God, uh, I think we miss the fact that it's not just humans that he is concerned with. And Jesus himself communicates that, doesn't he? Um, he talks about, you know, the birds and, and the flowers and, and that a bird doesn't fall from the sky, that God doesn't know it. That he, that, and remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, what was the, not the Garden of Eden, after the Garden of Eden with Cain and his brother, what was the first means by which God knew that Abel was dead? The earth cried out to God because blood had been spilled upon it. And so God's relationship with creation is a little more substantial than we often associate it with. Um, we, we often think of those as benign or, or you know, they're not, they don't, matter because they're not in the image of God, but God to God they do matter. And when we get to Romans, um, what does it say? It says all creation groans under this sin. Well, who are they groaning to? It's not to us. You're not listening to it. We're not paying attention. Uh, not really. Uh, maybe the environmentalists might think that they're listening to trees groan. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, creation is under the stress that we have put on it because of sin. And that's not just... I'm not just talking about what we have done in stripping forests and strip mining and, and pollution and all that. That's not really what I'm referring to. That certainly is maybe one small manifestation of it. But they're under that stress of the curse that the earth that was designed to bring forth what? Fruit. It was designed, created, good, to bring forth everything we need. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? The ground was cursed. 
And so here's all this soil around us that desires, if, if we want to project some human, some anthropomorphisms there, that desires to bring forth good things and are bringing forth weeds and briars. And, and, so, and this storm that hit, that's not the intention of creation was to have a devastating storm hit that and all the erosion that's involved in that, the flood, all of those things. When we look through all those things, we need to consider that that is the weight of sin, of man's sin on the earth. I am not proposing that we go into the evolution, the evolution, the, the environmentalist model that somehow we raise up the, the world as uh, a deity, that we have to, that we're the, curse on it, but it has been cursed because of our sin. And God not only listens to our prayers, I am convinced that when the Bible says all creation groans for its deliverance, that he is listening to the earth's interests as well. All creation. And so, um, and I know some of you can't always figure me out because sometimes I sound like a bleeding heart liberal and sometimes I don't. Um, but I try to be very respectful when I take a life so that my family can live. So if I kill an animal, I'm going to try to do it in the most humane po- way possible. I don't make light of it. I don't play with, with it. I don't, uh, to- I, don't, I don't make it suffer and nor do I take lightly the fact that I've just had to shed blood so I can put meat on the table for my family. Um, and it's sad that our society has been disconnected from that, that our kids think that just meat just shows up at restaurants and hamburgers and, and in the deli section of, the, of some place. And, and, uh, but to recognize that this is what it takes for us since the flood, um, really is that after the flood that we are commanded to eat meat, um, since the flood. This is what it takes to sustain life. And there is... Oh, how should I, there's a wrongness about that. Um, in that it wasn't... Not, not that it's an evil. Not that it's to be avoided. It cannot be avoided. It shouldn't be avoided. But it's a reminder to us the reason I have to shed blood to live is because of men's sin and perversity. Not because eating meat is perverse because God commanded it but rather because all the way back to the garden, it was the intention of God. It was the design of creation to sustain life without the shedding of blood. And when blood is shed, the earth cries out. And so we, uh, so many environmentalists get along with me very, very well, um, but I don't worship creation. But I do recognize it as the handiwork of God that I have a stewardship over and a recognition that it is under a kind of suffering. Well, one of the aspects that I want to begin with in the Millennial Kingdom is that this is the season of rest for our world. That we're going to have, among other things, a description throughout the Old Testament uh, in multiple passages uh, I'd like to go to them, but where uh, there's a restoration of things. We are going back to almost an Edenic environment. Not completely, because we are going to see in Ezekiel where it says, you know, 
Egypt, if you don't come worship God at your own altar, uh, kind of interesting that that nation is identified separately, and we're going to talk about that more next week, um, as a place of worship, while everyone else is going to be heading to Jerusalem uh, to, uh, re- to worship before Christ. Uh, Egypt is given their own place of worship, uh, and it says, if you don't go there and do that in honor and in, uh, obedience, um, I'm going to send a, a famine on your land. And that's in Ezekiel. And so we're going to look at that a little bit more as we're going to talk about the nations and the relationship and the reigning and ruling that's listed here in Revelation. But in terms of the purpose of that, one of the purposes is to give this world its rest. Um, because it's going to be destroyed with fire, but somehow in the in the working of God of what is fair or what is uh, His design, He wants to give this world a time of rest. And so we will have the earth producing bountifully all the things that God promised the nation of Israel, land, flow of milk and honey. Um, we're going to find them at peace. Uh, there's no war. There's no famine. There's, there's no pestilence. There's no disease. Um, it says the child that lives... If anyone dies at 100 years old, they're considered a child. So all those lifespans that we see back pre-flood are going to be restored. We're going to see six, seven, eight hundred year old people, and it's going to be normative. It's going to be the aberration if somebody dies at 100 years old. And so we are going back pre-flood and into a somewhat Edenic, like the Garden of Eden, an Edenic environment where the curse of sin is, is lightened at least, I'd like to say lifted, but because of those other passages, I can't fully state that, but it's certainly lifted. And men are able to function uh, not because they have accepted Christ as their Savior or accepted Him as their King, but rather because God is going to force the issue. And I think there is a facet of this is why the must is in verse 3. Why must um, Satan be released? Uh, and we're going to reference that in two weeks. Uh, from Not next week, but two weeks from tonight. But uh, again, there is men are going to be able to function in a restored nature that's going to go back to its original intent and function. And we're going to find no carnivores really among the animal kingdom. We're just not going to see it. We're going to see them uh, lying down together. And, and I know you can go on YouTube and they've trained some lion and they pulled out all his claws and teeth and laying down with a lamb and oh, here we are. Uh, that's all staged, okay? Um, what it's talking about, <laughs> oh, we must be in the middle of the kingdom because here's a picture of a lion and lamb laying down together. No, it's talking about that all of that violence is going to be gone. And so a child's going to play with a serpent because there's no threat there anymore. Because the natural order will be restored. And so as much as the environmentalists think that the natural order doesn't include man somehow, that we're the plague on the world, uh, the natural order includes us and it includes no violence. So you ever watch the nature shows where they show the hunt and the kill and, the, and they don't want to interrupt, interfere? We don't want to, you know. So here they are picturing this. They've been having this photo thing. They've been paid way too much money to track this animal and uh, then it gets injured and there they are just crying but we can't, 
we can't affect this. We can't interfere. And so this is just the natural order. We have to let this animal die uh, the way it would be as if no humans, because if we interfere, we ruin the natural order. Right? And so they let this crippled animal limp around for weeks until it's finally predated upon and killed. And, and they're, oh, this is so sad, you know. Um, and be, well, it's sad because they lost their means of income because they just lost the star of their show. Um, but they refused to intervene because their assumption is that if we intervene, we're destroying. We're ruining the natural order. And we saw that in the Redwood Forest. So here's my kids. We get the red for the first time out. The first thing every kid, and it doesn't matter if you're 20 or two and a half, um, every kid, as soon as they get out in the redwood forest, want to do one thing. Guess what it is? Not climb. You cannot climb a redwood. <laughs> you jump on the fallen redwoods. They're this tall, falling down on their side. Okay, they're taller than me falling on their side. And so the first thing they want to do, if it's uprooted, is climb up the uprooted part and get up there so they're eight feet in the air um, on a fallen tree. And then you look down, there's a sign, do not climb on the fallen trees. You're violating their integrity. They need to rot the way they're supposed to rot without us being here. And if you climb on a dead tree... You're violating its integrity. That is, the, that is a declaration that we believe man doesn't belong on this earth. Okay? And that's not what I'm proposing at all. And so um, we are here to intervene. We are here to use that. And so we got millions and millions and millions of cubic, of linear feet, of board feet, of redwood lumber laying on the ground in our national forest um, being allowed to rot. And you know how long it takes redwood to rot? No, we don't. But we're going to let it rot. I mean, a tree eight foot tall to sustain its integrity. The environmentalists know nothing. But God, when he comes, will restore all of creation's integrity. What we were designed for. And trees were not designed to rot. That is not their true integrity. They were designed to grow and they were designed to be used, to be employed. And so the natural resources are there for our benefit. It was created for man. Man isn't the scourge on, crea- on nature. We are the managers of nature. And so Christ comes in. He's going to restore those, those, the creation and, and, and he's going to answer creation's groanings. And so throughout Revelation, we have seen God respond to prayers. All the way back to chapter 6, here's the people praying, Lord, how long, how long till you judge, till you avenge our blood? How long? God says, wait a little while, Um, the end is not yet, and your number has to be filled up, and then I will. And we see those prayers being brought in uh, and and initiating the trumpet judgments, that 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 is the, the movement. And so God is going to do justice. And among the just things God will do, not only will be for us, but it will be for creation. And so I want to just say, I'm going by the way from the weakest to the strongest reason for the thousand year reign, okay? So this is not my strongest point because at first, it's probably my weakest. And we're going to work our way through this. Um, the, the weakest but the 
First, I believe that God in His justice answers the groanings of creation that wants to be restored. To once its integrity uh, uh, brought forth. That wants its dignity again. And uh, doesn't want to shed blood. Doesn't want to uh, cause havoc with weather and, and tsunamis and earthquakes. And, and, and remember, that's been a large portion of what just got done for seven years is this, this torrent of, of, uh, of natural, but yet supernatural, natural disasters upon the globe. And so we come into this time and, and it's, you can almost hear all creation go, and the groaning is over. And now for a thousand years, they can be what they're intended to be. But there's a problem. And the problem is uh, the problem of sin. And this doesn't mean sin has disappeared. It means the consequences of sin have been alleviated. And that is going to create a dilemma. And to resolve that dilemma, we're going to have Satan released again. So, if men are not going to die, if men are going to be in this wonderful creation that's been restored to its bountiful intent and not going to suffer as long as they do what Jesus says, um, nothing bad happens to them. They'll have feasting. They'll have old age, they'll have no disease, they'll have all these things uh, benefiting them. Israel will be just multiplied in the land. They'll have their full borders that they've never really had their full borders, even in the Solomonic, Solomonic period. They've never had their fullest borders that are promised them by God. And so Jesus Christ as the, as the King of Israel will give them their fullest borders there as a nation um, and so all men will be able to enjoy the Garden of Eden for a thousand years without the tree of life, and yet their lives will be extended. And they will be able to not have to worry about disease, cancer, death, any of it really, um, as long as they just toe the line, as long as they obey um, the king. And, uh, and worship Him as they've been instructed. And so, uh, this is a great benefit. And yet, we recognize that while the Bible describes us, those who participate in the first resurrection as ruling and reigning with Christ, those that we are ruling and reigning over um, as national Israel comes to Christ and acknowledges her, Him as the Messiah and herself as His nation, chosen nation, as the uh, we recognize that the other nations are not filled with believers. They haven't turned to Christ in terms of faith, but rather they are enjoying all the benefits of Eden without the, 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 uh, a heart that's for God. They don't have hearts that are, that are following after Christ as their Savior, as their Lord uh, and Master, um, but they are enjoying all the benefits. And I think one of the strong reminders is my pictures. Um, as my strong reminders um, is uh, the, within the millennial kingdom, the second purpose within there is to demonstrate 
to all men on earth, both those who have been resurrected and live and reign with Christ, but also for national Israel who has come to Christ in addition to the nations who are uh, forced to follow Him, though not believing fully in Him, um, is that God is gracious. He has caused the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is the loving uh, good one. And all of the accusations of man against him are going to just be silenced. You cannot claim any of those. And we can silence them. We can look at God's word and says, you know, but the fact is that when you confront men today, they still want to say, why does God allow this? And why does God allow that? And why does God allow that? How many of you have heard that? As a statement against the gospel, why I shouldn't believe in God, why I shouldn't follow after him, why I shouldn't even read his book. Because he, how could he allow little children to suffer like that and, and all these people to die in an earthquake or whatever or some disease? How could God allow that? Well, for a thousand years, that accusation will be completely muted because God will not allow any of it. But you see, that isn't the fundamental problem between man and God. But God's going to take that argument and He's going to throw it in Penn's face and say, okay, you want to see what happens when I rule with an rod of iron? I'm going to reestablish the intent of nature and it's going to be good to you. I'm going to take away all the things that you say I have been bringing upon you. We know it's because of our sin, but the world doesn't say that. They don't ever acknowledge that they had a part in making this world what it is um, um, because we'd have to humble ourselves. And we don't recognize the grace of God that, that even under sin, the earth still produces sufficient for us to live. It, it, it is sufficient. I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's equitable because there are some places like your neighborhood where you can go to a grocery store and there's a great abundance and there are other places, um, like you've seen here on your screen, where there isn't. Although, i got to tell you, in Haiti, I saw food. It was just uh, not affordable, um, be, even though it was donated to the nation. It was taken at the ports and being sold to them at exorbitant prices, American prices. And so we look at the access, and again... That argument of man against the justice of God is going to be completely silenced in a mechanism, in a manner that is man's orientation. Instead of going to God and looking to his word and saying, why do bad things happen? And instead of studying the book of Job out and, and discovering the, the wisdom that is there and, and to embrace the part of our sin and its curse on this planet and to recognize that it's not really God. God doesn't want this stuff to happen, but it's necessary because of what we're bringing. Instead of doing that, God's going to take their argument and show that that really isn't the issue. And for a thousand years, he's going to take that argument fully away. And men can't say, why did you allow this? Because God won't allow it. There will be no consequences that I can find of 
of sin outside of that one example. There's no substantial consequences of sin um, where we have apparently some death, but not like we're accustomed to. Um, and we have uh, some possibility of famine, but again, it's not an expectation. Uh, we have this restful period on the earth, and yet that's not going to solve the rebellion of men's hearts. Because that really isn't the issue at all anyway. And so in, the, in terms of the thousand years, you're going to hear me talk a lot about God using the thousand years to establish his justness. Now you say, well, why does he have to do that? He doesn't have to, but he has chosen to do that. And I believe it has a lot to do with the great white throne judgment. That here we're going to have his justice um, full. And it's going to be a response again, as I said, to the groaning of creation and uh, what God somehow in his design uh, owes them. That, that he has chosen in his love for not just man, but for all his creation to give grant them this, this day of rest. But also to silence men. That you think that, it, it, that your sin is an environmental issue? You think it's because of the world you grew up in? And let me just share with you, that is the predominant, overwhelming philosophy of our age. Why do you do bad things? Remember, our world says, oh man, our world says you do bad things because your people around you made you do it. Because the world says that man is basically good. That children are innocent. We've dealt with this on our Wednesday night study. That the world says children are completely innocent. They have no bent. They're a blank slate. And the Bible says, no, they're sinners. And so we want to address that facet. That, that's the dominant philosophy of our age. And of every age. Men are basically good. And the environment they are grazed up in is deterministic. It makes them do bad things. And, whether, and we kind of join in that a little bit. You know, we talk about, well, the role of the father in the home. Homes without fathers produce this kind of, of criminal activity. And so we kind of buy into that a little bit ourselves, let's be honest. Um, but the fact is, is that sin is not an environmental issue. It is a heart issue. And so what God is going to do in this thousand years is take away all of those excuses. All of those arguments are going to be gone. Because your environment is going to be perfect. Who are you going to blame it on now? After a thousand years, who are you going to blame it on that you go right back to rebellion the first chance you get? Who are you going to blame it on? Your parents? Your great, 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 great grandparents who are still alive with you? A thousand years is a long time. <laughs> I don't know if the rate of pregnancies and will be the same during that period if it's going to revert to the Edenic period um, and its rate. But um, 
you can't blame your environment. You can't blame, blame your upbringing. You can't blame, well, uh, I, was, I had it hard because no one will have it hard. Um, no one will be hungry. No one will be poor. Uh, no one will be diseased. No one will be abandoned. N- none of that is going to happen. And so you can't blame your environment at all. And so when we get down three weeks from now and we see Gog Magog, um, there's a justice there where God just takes this argument of man that he is unjust and throws it in their face. It says, you claim that it's because you're on a sinful earth that you are sinners. But rather than the recognition that you are sinners and you are staining the earth. And there's a big difference between those two. If we were not, if, if God had just created us a better place, we would be better people. Well, He's going to give us a better place for a thousand years. It's not going to make you better people. And that brings us to the third area, and that is, it's going to. We're going to talk about that a little more next week. We're going to look more into Ezekiel and give you all those passages. And that is, that it's going to be reinforcement that there is only one way to deal with sin and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. You can take the sinner, wash them, shave them, groom them, put on a nice suit, a white shirt, a tie, sit them in the front row of the church, give them a King James Bible that they can barely lift and you can teach them every song in the hymnal and you will not change their heart. The only thing that changed the hearts of men is the work of Jesus Christ. And so we don't preach all of that. We preach a gospel that says you need to trust in Christ. Then you can address these other aspects of your life of conforming yourself to Christ. But we don't try to conform people to Christ first. And that includes in our government. And this idea which filled the moral majority back in Falwell's day, that we want our society to conform itself to the ethics of, of Christianity is misplaced because you can't. The law proved that in Israel, didn't it? You can't use law to conform people. You can use it to control them a little bit, but you can't use it to conform them to a moral position because it doesn't change their heart. Only the blood of Christ does that. And that is going to be proven and it's going to be demonstrated because there's a weird thing that happens during this millennial kingdom. If something else was restored, that's weird to you and me. We're going to talk about it next week. But uh, this is about a day of rest and justice. This is part of God's justice uh, that, he's going to di- that makes the great white throne um, purer if you will. I don't know how to say otherwise. It's not that it's impure or unjust, but it's going to be demonstrably pure. And we've seen that all the way along. God never initiates judgment without a statement of why it's just. This is just because of what you did to my saints. This is just because of what you did here. This is just because... And so God has always demonstrated that throughout Revelation. And this is no exception. That right before a new judgment, the great white throne judgment, we have a thousand year, the final judgment, we have a thousand years of God establishing His justice for what's coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your love for us. Thank You again for this time we spend Your Word.
And we thank you for the necessity of this thousand-year reign. And we don't necessarily always understand it. And, and we think, well, let's just go to heaven. But you have purpose and, uh, and to declare yourself uh, just and holy and pure um, and to silence men at the judgment. And Lord, we certainly look forward to that. We look forward to our role in that. Um, but Lord, we do pray that we might be ready to humbly acknowledge your justice today. Not just in that day, but that you are just today. And that we are the benefactors of your grace. That we deserve nothing but death and misery because we have stained your creation so badly with sin. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that we might not ever be found to be those that shake a finger at you and say, how could you do this? That we might look at ourselves and say, how can we do this to you when you have done so much for us? And Lord, that we might have that heart that shows that we, the blood of Christ has made a difference here. And we praise this in Christ Jesus' name.